This episode of the Holly Fueled Nutrition Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. To save 10% off your first month of therapy, visit the link in the show notes, which is BetterHelp, better slash Holly Fueled. Hey everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Holly Samuel, and I am a registered dietitian, board certified sports dietitian, and have my master's in eating disorders, personal trainer, and I'm your podcast host today, obviously. And on today's episode, we're actually going to jump into a re record. Um, I had released this episode with Evelyn Triboli, who is one of the authors of Intuitive Eating back in 2021. And it was a really popular episode, really popular topic. Um, we talked specifically intuitive eating for athletes and runners. Um, so I wanted to bring it back to the surface um, around this time of year. I know a lot of people are kind of settling into their nutrition rhythm post holidays, post New Year's resolutions, and it's starting to be like, oh, I have to do something that's sustainable. Um, so I thought this would be a good one to kind of bring back up to the surface because it's pretty evergreen and Evelyn is such a wealth of knowledge and a fantastic resource. And if you didn't know, she is quite the athlete herself. I think a lot of the times the misconception is that intuitive eating is not for athletes because we can't just eat when we're hungry. We can't just stop when we're full. But if that's your understanding of intuitive eating, that's not quite a deep enough or thorough enough understanding that kind of shows maybe we have not uh, read the studies, read the book, um, read the resources, um, because it's so much more than that. And as someone who was a high caliber athlete like Evelyn herself, when she was writing this book um, and doing some of this research, she has absolutely thought of this and how it may apply to athletes. Um, Evelyn ran the first Olympic marathon trials for women. Um, and now she is still a runner and she likes to surf and do a lot of other sports as well. So without further ado, let's talk to dietitian legend, Evelyn Triboli. I'm so honored to be talking to you right now. I am thrilled to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, for those of you who are tuning in right now, um, we have a dietitian legend on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> she is a co-author of one of the very popular books you might have heard of, Intuitive Eating, and you have so many other accomplishments under your belt as well. But I want to let you introduce yourself so that you can tell everyone uh, who you are, uh, where you live, and what you do. Oh my gosh, that's so easy and so hard at the same time. <laughs> So I, I guess what I'd like to focus on is 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 the intuitive eating model. You know, uh, being a dietitian, Elise and I both are dietitians. You know, we created this, you know, over 25 years ago based on our own frustration of what we're seeing in private practice. And we can say that the model was research inspired. But fast forward today, we have almost 150 studies now on our work, including a new meta analysis showing the psychological correlates. And so it's been uh, incredible. We have over 1400 health professionals in 37 countries who've been trained and certified in our work. So that's the work that I'm doing now is actually really focusing on training other people how to do this, both from a, the research, understanding the roots on, on it, and then also how do you help someone cultivate this, this practice? It's one thing to know it, but to do it is a completely different thing. So it's an incredibly gratifying way to work with patients. It's incredibly gratifying a way to work with this with health professionals. And so in terms of where I live, I live in uh, Southern California. And what else would you like to know? 
I love it. I love it. Well, yeah, I'm definitely excited to pick your brain on the intuitive eating front a little bit. Um, and in terms of this podcast, so a lot of our audience here, um, a lot of different people, but the podcast itself primarily serves runners um, and ah! endurance athletes. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk with you more about that perspective. Um, and I know that you have quite the background in running as well. So can you I do? Okay. So now I'll share, you know, you just never know how much to share in the beginning. <laughs> so yeah, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the longer story since runners might appreciate this. I was telling a kid, one of my surf instructors uh, about my story into running. He goes, Oh my God, I totally forgot. It was even like that. So here's the deal. So back, um, I had this, well, it's, it's the short story is I ran on the boys track team in high school because there were no girls team. And in fact, I had to run in boys clothing. And it was the first time because I had this desire. It happened when I was in elementary school. We moved uh, schools and they had, it was an Olympic year and they divide the school into two teams and there was a race and I beat the whole school. <laughs> And that's when I knew I wanted to run. And uh, so it was really, really cool. But the interesting thing that ended up happening is even though I beat the boys, I met the criteria, the coach did not want to give me the letter. And so that was the first time I, I fought the patriarchy and won. The, the boys that I competed with were really cool, no, no issues there. And then luckily, by the time I went on to college, they had, you know, women's track and cross country, which I ran on. And then the, the big thing that I still look very fondly back on is uh, qualifying for the first ever Olympic marathon trials for women, because up in, that was in 1984. And before that time, the longest distance was like a mile, you know, God forbid you pass out of the vapor. So it was really uh, something to be part of history. And, and, and it, you know, this with, with running, especially longer distance, you tend to get into a pace with a group or, or an individual. And I was running with this woman, we didn't know each other. And, and she, she asked me, I think, I don't know, we're somewhere halfway in the marathon. She goes, are you like a politician or something? I said, no, why? She goes, you keep waving at all the people. I go, look at all the people. I go, I know this is as far as I'm going to get as far as the Olympics. I know I was going to make the team and I want to enjoy every, every minute of it. And so even though that was a long time ago, like my mind is, I still have that mindset of pursuing assistance, you know, and I think it's helped me with this, um, with intuitive eating, because there's a lot of unlearning that, that happens with this, uh, with this model. But I, I do love working with athletes. I, I know what it's like to really want to win, to compete and, and do all that you can in, in the interest of your body and your sport. So, yeah. Yeah. That is fabulous. I learned, I learned this about you in, in terms of uh, being a runner and like competing in the Olympic trials, the first ever one for women, probably like within the past year. And I, oh. I'm a dietitian myself. I love your work. I've looked Thank into you. it a ton, done my research, but I was just like, oh, I knew I loved her. Like when I learned, <laughs> um, I was like, this is amazing. So I was excited to have you on the show to have you talk more about that because I think a lot of people don't realize this about your background in the running community. Yeah, yeah. I've, and I was deeply involved in the running community for a long time till I retired from the from the sport. And, you know, this is a sad truth. So I had a knee surgery about three years ago, and I haven't been able to run since then. And I really, really miss it because no matter what other sport I would be taking up, my fitness level never stopped me. <laughs> You know, but and plus I just enjoyed uh, running, but now I spend more time hiking and surfing and those kinds of things. So, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about surfing because that is so cool. How'd you get into that? You know, I tell you, it's an interesting story. I really got into it this year during the pandemic. You know, I was playing, this is going to sound so funny. I was playing competitive uh, ping pong. I had a coach. 
<laughs> I'd play in tournaments and they shut it down and they shut down my gym and I, I was doing other activities, but it just, I needed something more, a little more intense. And so I took up surfing. I had dabbled in it before, but uh, there's a, a women's uh, surf shop that, that's been in the business, I think for over 25 years, there are a pair of twins that have owned it. And I would go down and take surfing lessons from their surf school and fell in love with surfing because it just gives you a focus. You get like this adrenaline hit and then you're good the rest of the day, you know? And so I'm still a beginner. You know, I'm, I'm just learning how to turn my board. I'm surfing on, on long boards. I can usually get up, but it, it's a humbling, difficult sport. And my respect to everyone out there who's in the water uh, catching waves. It's, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think I saw a video of you like catching a wave and I was like, this woman knows what she's doing. This is awesome. You did a great job. Uh, thank you. Thank, you know what? It's just the, I, this is, this is, I guess, the privilege of being in sports is that I have this understanding that if I stick with something long enough, I'm going to learn how to do it. So I don't, I don't get discouraged. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just sometimes a little bit, but, but for the most part, yeah. Yeah. Thank that you. Like, that sounds like a runner's mindset. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, in terms of, um, you know, your background in sports and obviously your background with intuitive eating, you know, kind of first as theories and, you know, science and now more as an evidence-based practice as we've developed the research. Um, I'm excited to talk with you about this, just knowing that perspective and now having our audience realize that, hey, one of the authors of intuitive eating is an Olympic, you know, trials qualifier in the marathon. This is stuff you should probably listen to. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what are some of the biggest nutrition mistakes that you have seen runners make in like both your kind of running life, but also in your practice as a dietitian over the years? Yeah. So I've worked with a lot of runners over the, a lot of athletes. And I should also mention, you know, one of my specialties is, is eating disorders. And I, I've also also seen this in, in recreational runners without eating disorders, but, and that is the need to feed your body enough food, you know, and when you are, you know, you're training like an athlete, you need to feed your body like an athlete because you are, and what can end up happening, this is the message I want everyone to hear, is, you know, when you're not getting enough to eat, whether it's unintentional or intentionally, you increase your risk of, of injury, and probably one of my most, I will never forget this, working with someone who was training against medical advice, end up getting a pubic bone stress fracture. I'd never seen that before. She wasn't healing upon going to physical therapy and so on. And so I don't say this to be, to, 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 uh, to scare everybody, but more to have the respect that our, our body actually needs nourishment. And right now in, in the time that we're living in with, with diet culture being so fierce and all this fear mongering, it can lead a lot of people to thinking, well, I don't, I don't need to eat, you know, and, and actually we do, <laughs> we do. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things that I've experienced myself, but also seen in practice as a dietitian is just like, and then research. I mean, a lot of runners, a lot of athletes uh, of all levels just aren't eating enough to fuel their bodies. And I think swimming upstream against the constant diet culture reminders of don't eat, don't eat, don't eat. And then the dietitians in the sports nutrition world saying, oh my gosh, no, please eat. And it's way more than you think it is. Um, yeah, really yeah. So in terms of like, you know, um, under fueling, whether it's intentional or unintentional, you know, leading to injuries and sometimes very severe injuries, like a pubic bone stress fracture, which, which sounds uh, horrible, quite frankly, Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what would be like your advice for people and where do you see some of those habits like overlapping with eating disorder habits? You know, it, th that used to be an easy question to answer. And what, what's happening now, because of all of the extreme dieting that's going on, 
uh, under the guise of health, a lot of people sadly are walking around with eating disorders and not even realizing it. And when we've seen that in the research too, that eating disorders have doubled in the last time period in which they're been looked at. It was a study looking uh, globally. I think they looked at 90 different studies and they found this. It's, it's, it's really kind of scary. Because uh, there's there's harm with intermittent fasting. There's a study that just came out on that. You know that you know when your body needs uh, energy to go, and if it's not getting it, it's going to get it from somewhere. It's going to go to your your muscles to catabolize those. So it's an issue. So if you find yourself just kind of blowing off meals, think that's not a big deal. You know. And by the way, let me let me let me back this up. Life happens. It, this is not about being perfect, but if it's if it's coming with some regularity and some intentionality, I'd look at that. But you know, and, and I would say a common problem I see uh, runners having a lot of athletes for that matter, especially when you're training uh, for something intensely, if you might be involved in two a days, training, you know, running twice a day or doing workouts twice a day, uh, it can temporarily blunt uh, hunger, you know, and so what can end up happening is between the scheduling of your training, and if you're in school, or if you're working, sometimes it's it's the art of how do I figure out how to feed my body, and so sometimes that's where I just go into, let's do nourishment as self-care, let's do nourishment as part as your training, just like you don't get in shape with one good run, and you don't get out of shape with one missed run, same thing with, with, with nourishment, we need to do something consistently over over time, it's a kindness to your body, you know? I love that you brought that up because I think I often hear in like the, we'll call it like the medical space with a bunch of different healthcare providers is like, oh, intuitive eating, you know, eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Um, and that's what it's all about. And then in the sports nutrition world, when hunger cues are blunted, you know, I'd be curious to see like just what you have to say about that, because I know intuitive eating, if you've read the book and if you've read the studies and if you've read into it, you know, it's a lot more than just eating when you're hungry Yeah, when you're full and athletes can actually very much benefit from the principles, but I'd love to hear kind of your, um, take on that as someone who's so deeply rooted in like both of those worlds. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's, it's acknowledging we have our wise mind. So sometimes the misperceptions from intuitive eating come from people not reading the book or the research, but sometimes it comes from because it's kind of exploding. And right now on social media, I just looked this up on TikTok. I think there's almost a half a billion with the B hashtags on intuitive eating. So it's confusing, you know, so anyone who's been confused out there, I don't, I, it, it makes sense to me, but we can use our wise mind and sometimes our hunger and fullness cues go offline. Stress can do that. Intense exercise can do that. And then the question is, okay, what is a kind way that I can feed my body, that I can nourish my body that matches my energy level in terms of desire to put something together and also match my time constraints. That's part of intuitive eating. That's part of nourishing. I call that nourishment as self-care, but when we're looking at athletes, it's not just self-care. It's also part of the performance aspect. You know, I'll never forget working with an athlete, an endurance athlete who came in because he was chronically tired and he said he thought he was lazy. And I looked at how much he's training. It's like, oh, dude, you're not lazy. You're not getting enough to eat. I would, I'd be laying on the couch, not wanting to do the dishes either, you know? And so looking at those kinds of things that, and, and, and so sometimes it means planning ahead. Sometimes it means doing things like eating in your car, on your way to work, on your way to school, um, because that's the best that you can do. And that's completely okay. Completely okay. So sometimes what happens, people get into this perfectionistic mindset that you have to do things precisely this way, or it doesn't count. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> And the truth is, yes, when you're learning something new, like if in intuitive eating, 
it technically is not no we all have the capability for the most part but when you're when you're trying to really hone in on it it helps to eat without distraction in the beginning but you don't have to do this in a perfectly non-distracted way it's just helpful that's all so yeah there's many ways to work with this I love it. And like, in terms of um, something I talk about with my clients often, and I actually use the same verbiage, like we need to eat sometimes out of self-care and not out of hunger and that's okay. Yes. Um, okay. In, in particular, when, you know, when we're following something like a marathon training plan, I always like to say like training for a marathon, like the distance itself, it's not intuitive. There's nothing intuitive about 26.2 <laughs> miles, right? Like, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. So yeah. Specific. No one's rolling out of bed and thinking, gee, I really feel like running 26.2 miles today. Exactly. Um, so like in terms of the feeling for that, learning how to do that sometimes isn't super intuitive. So it can feel like, Ooh, should I eat right now? If I'm not hungry, is it going to be too much food? especially when we have these other unhelpful messages and diet culture telling us, you know, that's too much food. You shouldn't be eating carbs, you know, yada, yada, yada. Oh my God. That drives me <laughs> wild. Yeah. 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 And I, I love that you said, you know, eating out of self-care, you know, even if your hunger cues are suppressed um, because you're doing so much training or if you're stressed or if there's other things involved, it's still important to feel your body. Yeah. And, and one of the ways that I work with this, and this does connect more directly with intuitive eating, is let's take the next step and notice. Let's notice how that makes you feel. Let's notice that day, how you go about your day. Are you more focused? Do you have more energy? How about the next day on, on training? I had a, an athlete, I was working with a swimmer and she was saying, oh my God, I forgot to eat carbs with my meal this morning. And I totally forgot to, for, I totally felt it in my workout. And that's awesome. And so sometimes what ends up happening when you make these changes that can seem like a real pain, well, let's, note, let's, let's find out, does it make a difference to you? Is it worth the, the effort? And if you start noticing, oh my God, I feel so much better. I actually feel like working out now. I'm not so exhausted. You know, we, the combination, that trap of overtraining and under eating, it's hard to get out of bed sometimes. And so noticing, oh, I, I, so that's, that's what I would have you do. And, and sometimes I'm working with athletes. I'll say, you know, have you ever been injured? And I haven't had an athlete say uh, no to that one. It's always, yes, I've had some kind of injury, but it's a, it's a reference point because usually when there's been an injury, you don't ever want to get injured again to the degree that you can help it. And you become more aware of emerging energies. And I'll say, how do you do that? How do you do that? Oh, and, it's, and I go, there's a similar thing at work with intuitive eating and the science underneath of that has to do with something called interceptive awareness. And, and that's perceiving physical sensations arising within your body. So I like to point out, it's kind of like cross training that when you're connecting with your body for your sport, this also applies with, with eating. I think it's really cool, you know? Yeah. And it's really validating to say, oh, yes. wow, that did help me. I should do that again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes it more self-sustaining because it, it feels good. Or it's, it's, it's it, what really kills me. Sometimes I've had athletes who just weren't getting enough to eat for a variety of reasons and their, and their trainings were just like, they were just dying. And it turned out it wasn't because of their mind. It wasn't because of their not willingness. They just weren't eating enough. And when they can see the contrast and the difference, like, holy moly. <laughs> Why didn't someone tell me this before? It's like, well, that's why you're here. So yeah. Yeah. It's like mile 20 of that marathon where that negative voice starts to get super loud. It's like, why are you doing this? Stop running. This really hurts. If you take your like fuel, sometimes that voice gets a little quiet for a couple minutes and you have a little bit of moment of reprieve because your brain's not like, Hey, 
eat something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. Super nice. Um, and in terms of like the, the running scene and eating disorders, um, mm. since I know, like you said, it's becoming even more of a gray area. Can you talk a little bit about like how you would approach runners who have recovered from an eating disorder or, or, or who are in that process of recovery, or maybe even they're in the stage of not realizing they have a problem. Um, and like how you would, address training and their future with running with that? Since I know there's a lot of opinions out there um, in the medical world about, oh, you're never going to be able to run again because you're using it to get smaller or oh. you can totally come back to it and it'll be safe and healthy for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you're raising some really important issues. And, and I think there's a danger anytime you just make a blanket statement like that, that could scare somebody. And so I like to look at everything on a, on a situation by situation basis, you know, and, and so let's, let's start with that in terms of what, what does that mean for, for the future? And so that's looking at where you're at in your recovery. Are you in a really solid place in your recovery? What is your team? So I always look back, what does your team think? It's not just one person, it's the dietitian, it's the therapist, it's the physician and, and, and other people perhaps as well. Is the team think it's a good idea? And cause you know, one of the things I, I, I like looking at when I'm working with my patients is when you recover, what are you recovering to? Why are you, why do you want to recover? And it's not an obvious answer. And then I'm saying not what we coach wants, not what your parents want, not what your partner wants. Why do you want to recover? And if some people say, I want to get back into my sport or I'm tired of getting injured, my response is let's find a way to do this in a way that's not going to hurt you, you know? And so one of the things I like to do is, is look at, we're making sure whenever when the team, the, the, the treatment team thinks it's a good idea at the, so the timing is really important, you know, because sometimes you want to do it a lot sooner before the body is, is ready. And it's important to, to listen to what your team has to say about that. Sometimes it's difficult information. It doesn't mean you can never do this. And then looking at how will this serve my recovery? And, and one of the things I look at in terms of red flags, how do I know when I'm slipping back? And so for a lot of the athletes I work with is when they start training beyond what the coach is asking them to do when they're over training. And so that's often a guideline that we, that we use is, is only sticking with what the coach is asking for and working in that way. And in the beginning, we're working closely with the physician, making sure vital signs are remaining stable, uh, including heart rate and those, and those types of things. Because I, I think when you have this threat, the idea that you can never have your sport again, if that's something that's been really important to you, we need to look at that. But sometimes people, after they've gone through these experiences, they might decide they don't want to be in that environment. And that's, that's fine as, as well. I've had some, some situations with athletes who really have been training intensely, who've got scholarships to universities, and sometimes they have realized they're done in the sport. And they had the realization as they're going through the recovery. And that's a hard, and I'm not saying that happens to everybody, but so it's not one easy answer, but looking at your indicators, how do you know you're doing well? And how do you know that you're slipping back? You know, looking at getting enough to eat, looking at uh, adequate training, not over training and those types of things and who is in your support system. And I've seen coaches can make a really big difference in this supporting the recovery. And sadly, I've also seen where coaches don't get it and are part of the problem. And so looking at that, maybe decisions need to be made in terms of the environment in that you're training in. So, Thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of the Hollyfield Nutrition Podcast. Regardless if you have a clinical mental health issue like depression or anxiety, or if you're just a human who lives in this world who is going through a hard time, therapy can give you tools to approach your life in a different way. And that's why I am so excited to tell you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable, more accessible, and this is an important mission because finding a therapist can be really, really hard, 
especially when you're limited to the options in your area. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out just a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in a little as a few days. Um, when I used BetterHelp, it was a few hours. <laughs> um, so it is truly a very quick and easy process compared to um, what I've had clients experience and what I've experienced myself in traditionally trying to find a therapist through the healthcare system. It is really easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. There is a link in my description, which is betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash hollyfueled, which is H-O-L-L-E-Y-F-U-E-L-E-D. And that link is in the description. Clicking that link helps supports this podcast, and it also gets you 10% off your first month of BetterHelp so you can connect with a therapist and see if it helps you out. Because finding a therapist can be a little bit like dating, if you don't really fit with the first therapist they match you to, which is super common in healthcare and therapy, you can easily switch to a new therapist at no additional cost without stressing about insurance, who's in your network, or anything like that. So if you are struggling, book the appointment, get started, consider online therapy with BetterHelp, visit the link in the description. And again, if this is something that you think is going to help you or you're nervous about it, taking the plunge is the most important first step. And then BetterHelp is going to let you sort out the rest. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I think like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot more of this talk happening in like the running world. Um, I think for a while it was, it was not talked about and there was a lot of negative things, like you said, in terms of coaches and how they talk to their athletes, especially kind of like male coaches to female athletes, yep. young athletes, impressionable athletes. And I think there's a lot more coming out um, on how that needs to change and how that could be better. And the conversation is getting a little bit more comfortable and more awareness brought to it, um, which is awesome. Like with the Mary Kane story and just some other, oh, yeah. yeah. we've talked about like the pressure and like what's helpful and what's not helpful, which is great. And if you find too, like if a runner is, you know, they feel that they've recovered from their eating disorder, they feel that um, they have a healthy relationship with running. Do you find too, like um, if some of those like habits start to slip back in that are disordered, whether it's triggered by stress or by, um, you know, like a common or even just think like the, what people wear to the start line of races, like there's a lot of triggering things in the running space. Um, do you like, ha like have anything that you tell people or any advice, any strategies for like when that situation starts to happen? Yeah. You know, the biggest strategy is just to be open to the possibility it can happen because something it's very stressful, sometimes traumatic for people when they go into, when they, sometimes they, they have to go into residential treatment centers, they don't want to do it. Then they often realize, Oh my God, thank God I did it. And because it's a stressful ordeal for many people, but a necessary one, and usually something they're really glad that they did, is when they're out, it's like, oh, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna be putting myself in harm's way to have that ever happen again. And it's 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 a sincere idea, but we also need to recognize that for a lot of people, an eating disorder becomes a coping mechanism. And when life gets really stressful, and if you've been stressed at a level you've never been stressed at, it's possible for those behaviors or those thoughts to come back. And there's no shame with that. And so if we can open, and, and by the way, I'm someone who endorses the idea that a full and complete recovery is possible 
possible. And yet I will also say it's possible to have relapses, not because you're not committed to your recoveries, because life happens, you know? And so part of I find is, is, is identifying what are some of these early warning signs for you. And I find it often first begins in the mind in terms of thoughts, in terms of body comparison, body checking, or whatever the triggering things happen to be. And there's nothing wrong with having the thoughts. It's when those thoughts turn into behaviors or compulsions, or you start building storylines on those thoughts. And if you notice they're starting to escalate, then that's the time to reconnect with your team. Or let's say you've moved on now, you're at a university on scholarship somewhere, then it's time to connect with, with someone there who can help you because it's much easier to get you right back on the path than to have you deep in a hole and have to dig out of that, you know? So looking at those kinds of things and for uh, uh, women, looking at menstrual patterns. If you're, if you're not menstruating yet, that's, that's something that really needs to be looked at and taken uh, seriously. In fact, even the whole, uh, oh my God, I, I get the acronym mixed up because I used to always say female athlete triad until they changed it. It's REDS, I believe, uh, relative yeah. energy deficiency, deficiency syndrome. We need to look at these kinds of things. And so the, the hardest part on all of this, there's no shame in this. It doesn't mean you're automatically slipping back. And what I'll say is anyone who comes back to me and says, hey, I'm, I have concerns, I've got these thoughts coming back. That actually makes me really excited. That shows me you value your recovery, the fact that you're um, being very open about it and, and going in for support. So we need to make it a way in which there's no shame in this. This isn't actually an example of you being responsible and taking care of yourself, you know? So yeah. Heck yeah, I love that. And like, it does show just like, you know, maturity too. And like, oh, I'm aware that this is happening and I know that I can do something about it. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna like succumb to the thoughts, which of course, if that happens, that that's human too. But um, it's nice to, to see you say like, just having the awareness and reaching out is a good strategy. And when, um, when I talk to a lot of runners, whether they've had, you know, a diagnosed um, eating disorder or disordered eating, or maybe undiagnosed, a lot of them have this concept idea of like, I need to be a certain weight to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on like race weight? And I know you're coming from someone, like you said, you used to run on the, the boys cross country team. And like, here we are now. Um, so you've probably seen the running scene through a lot of different, um, ages. I have, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you a little side story. Cause I, every time I think about it, it still, it, it gives me a fond memory and it shows you how different things are back then versus now culture, diet culture wise. So at the end of the week, we would all, all of us, the boys and me, we'd sit in a circle and one leg, we'd be in like the hurdler stretch and one leg would be in the center and we would compare everyone's legs for anastomosis to see who's got the most vascularization because it's a byproduct of training. So we were focused on the functioning even way back then, you know? And so the problem thing, when you start talking about race weights, I, th I think we need to put turn this all upside down, because there's so much diet culture out there, that when you're at it's one thing, you know, sometimes some sports just turn to uh, tend to attract certain people with certain types of bodies that can happen. But the moment you start prescribing weight loss, you're also losing a muscle tissue, you know, and muscle tissue affects performance. And there was a study done many years ago, looking at runners who weren't eating quite enough carbohydrates and what they said what they found is they had degradation of lean muscle mass specifically the branch chain amino acids are being catabolized and converted into into carbs for for energy so there's a cost to this and we need to be looking back and saying wait a minute where's the data on this and when you look at the body and i mean the body of research showing that 
weight, intentional weight loss through some kind of diet manipulation is one of the most predictive things for weight gain. That's one thing that most people get really shocked and surprised. And some people have the false belief that, oh, it's just if you're doing a fad diet. It's like, no, these are studies where they were medically supervised. That shocks people. There's also a body of research showing that this is not sustainable. So why would we want to get someone involved in a practice that becomes problematic, that ends up perpetuating something called weight cycling, where you're gaining and losing the same weight, which is um, related to health risks down the road. So I think, it, I think it's something that really needs to get looked at and challenged. And I see sometimes, I'm just going to say, oh my God, I'm going to say it. I see a lot of arrogance sometimes in this from coaches uh, or some trainers who don't have training and background in these kinds of things, or they were an elite athlete themselves. And that's awesome. But it doesn't mean you understand the biochemistry of what's going on with the body. You know, it's like, do as I say, what, what, regardless, and we need to look at those kinds of things. And, you know, this was a while back, but the 2012 Olympics, I'll never forget the Olympics in London, because of the body shaming directed at women, these are women, I don't remember what sports they were in now, to be honest, I thought, oh, my God, these are women, who are, who are the best of the best in their sport and they're being criticized about bodies. That's gotta stop. That's part of diet culture. That's also part of the patriarchal process and so on. So you're asking important questions. Yeah, and like with an Olympic year coming up, I mean, we just finished the Olympic track trials in the, in the US. And I mean, I think, again, I think there's more conversations. There's more like key players who are in, involved in like narrating the, the trials and like who are in charge of narrating the sport and, you know, putting their two cents in, which is also helpful to get conversations started. But um, you look at people on the, on the track too, and I think you could look at it two ways. You could look at a bunch of women lined up who are all very thin, who all have, you know, similar traits to their body types. And then you could also look at it where if you, you know, kind of look at them individually, they do all look different. You know, they, they don't quite all have like the same six pack or the same like thing that I think a lot of people are comparing themselves to um, what should be an ideal runner's body. If you can't see me on the podcast, I'm doing air quotes right now, Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> but around the runner's body, we've also had a movement of the hashtag on Instagram and social media. That's I have a runner's body and it's, you know, supposed to promote body diversity in the runner's uh. body. Um, you know, I think it's definitely, it's challenging for people to see like the elite of the elite levels. Yeah. They don't all have six packs. They are all thin people. Um, and also that you don't have to look like them to run really well. Yeah. Or, or to run and, and looking at just recreational running. And I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name. <laughs> oh my God. I can't believe I can't remember her name. She's on Instagram and she got body shamed in the New York marathon. She's like a mile 22 and some guy just sitting on the sidelines and here she is, she's finishing this marathon. It's just uh, unbelievable. Uh, so I, I think all of this stuff needs to get, get looked at period. Our culture needs to change. And I, one of the things I like to look at too, is longevity in the sport. You know, and if we're creating a toxic environment that is pro proliferating eating disorders and fear mongering and extreme types of diets that lead to eating disorders, I think that really needs to get looked at deeply. What are we doing here? You know? Yeah. And I mean, if you like, if anyone stands at the finish line of like any major marathon, you are going to see all walks of life, like crossing that finish line at all different times. And it's, it's a really cool experience. So I totally agree. Like we take reality and then we kind of take this hypothetical diet culture mindset of what we think a runner sh should look like. And then we start comparing ourselves to that and we totally take away reality and it needs, they don't line up and they, they need to line up better and we need to change the narrative, which yeah. I think 
people like you and intuitive eating and all the research coming out around, you know, body diversity and, you know, how that's a good thing and how, you know, health at every size is definitely, um, you know, kind of getting into more of the sports world uh, bit by bit, slowly, <laughs> but surely. Um, I think it's definitely important conversation to have. And in terms of the research, um, you know, can you describe like just the growing evidence um, and how that's been just growing a lot over the course of the past few years and how these findings can help sports dietitians kind of apply intuitive eating principles to their practice and their athletes? Yeah, that's a big question. They're good questions. And, and so one of the things I, I'd like to start off with is that we center the person. So in this case, we're centering the athlete. You're the, you're, you've got the wisdom of your body. We can certainly take feedback or get feedback from other people, but it's about you having agency, uh, about you knowing what, what feels good, what satisfies and so on, what, what feels good to you when you're performing and, and so on. Um, and the studies that are coming out are really encouraging. There was a, a really significant study, although preliminary, published just a year ago on university women with disordered eating behavior. And they did an intervention with intuitive eating. They used our intuitive eating workbook, either in a group setting or an individual setting uh, or self-study rather. And across the board, they got improvement. So disordered eating behavior, I should mention, or disordered eating is, means when they haven't met the criteria for an actual eating disorder, but they're having the behaviors just not frequently enough by the criteria. So that would be, you know, in this case, they were, they were binge eating, there was over-exercise, restricting and these kinds of things. And at the end of the study, they, they improved across the board, which is exciting. The caveat, however, is there was no uh, control group in here. So that's the next step on that. But there's been a, a meta-analysis study that was just published this year, looking at the psychological correlates of intuitive eating. And when you start looking at all the, the well-being, the, the body image, the body trust, trusting in self, uh, health outcomes, it's just incredible. It's like, who wouldn't want this, you know? And when you start taking a look at the contrast of dieting or disordered eating behavior, you see the anxiety, you see all the things that, that pop up. And so sometimes the way intuitive eating is framed, it's, it's in, the, in the realm of like positive psychology. So positive psychology came about when they were looking, they were tired of looking at all the pathology around mental health. Like what about the positive things that make us feel good and flourish? And so intuitive eating is kind of like that way too. You don't have to have an eating pathology to benefit with this. And so, it's just rather, rather exciting. And so what we need now is, of course, is more intervention research. We've got an assessment tool, assessment scale that can be really, really useful on this. And it's just amazingly, it's, it's gratifying <laughs> to see all the research, to see it be, now it's getting popular, there I say popular in the research world, and probably scientists are, are you know, wincing as I say that, as, as it also is popular in social media. So we're getting the validity where it needs to be, but we're also getting this kind of social acceptance and buy-in because people are tired of, they're tired of being told what to do. So it's about freedom. If you are constantly worried and thinking about your eating, you're not present in your here and now body. Body. So as an athlete present and noticing an emerging injury or noticing, gosh, I, I think I need, I'm overtraining. I need to talk to my coach, maybe about taking some time off or something like that, you know, and it disconnects you from your relationship. So it's basically a model that really helps to cultivate a healthy relationship with food, mind and body that increases the quality of, of your life, you know, in which you can be flourishing and doing the things that are important to you, whether it's uh, running or finding, you know, the cure for cancer. 
Yeah. And I love hearing you talk about the research and just like some of the notes you said, like, you know, you're going to be more in touch with your body. You're going to have better mental health. You're going to have some of these positive, um, you know, really endless positive, like physical and, you know, psychological outcomes. And it's like, what athlete wouldn't want that? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and there's actually even some outcome data that are being looked at too, with like, uh, with diabetes and, and blood lipids and those kinds of things. So that's, that's an aspect of it. Well, because there's a other thing that isn't talked about enough. And that is the unintended consequences from food restriction. And that often leads besides mental health problems, including eating disorders. Uh, it, it, it causes a lot of loss of control eating when you haven't had enough to eat and you finally sit down and there's an opportunity. It's no different than when uh, you have to hold your breath, like in surfing, or if you're in the waves, you're going to hold your breath, the set comes, sometimes the big set, you got to stay down longer. And by the time you get up, it's this big inhale for dear life. And no one says, oh my God, you've got loss of control breathing. You're addicted to air. No one says that. Everyone understands oh yeah, you were down for, for a long time and <laughs> get a breath. But, and we need to have that same perspective when it comes to, to eating, that if you haven't had enough to eat for a variety of reasons, it could just been a timing thing or who knows what, that when you finally have access to food, uh, you might be inhaling the food and there's nothing wrong with you. That's actually a compensatory mechanism. However, it doesn't usually feel good. There's, a, there's an urgency, there's an intensity. We, we call all that, you know, primal hunger is like, get out of my way or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm going to eat you. I'm so hungry. That kind of feeling. And so looking at what we can do uh, in terms of honoring that hunger. So hunger, it, it's really sad in our culture that it's been pathologized. I've had, I can't tell you the amount of people I've worked with that have been afraid of hunger. And I ask why? Well, because I end up binge eating. Well, what do you do? They avoid the hunger. And the more you avoid, then the more likelihood that happens, you know, and I would imagine the runners listening uh, to this podcast, you've probably had experiences, you know, you've gone a long run, something got delayed, you haven't had breakfast yet, and you finally sit down, it's like, holy moly, <laughs> nothing wrong with you. That's your body surviving, that's your cells on a biological level, knowing exactly what to do, even if that wasn't part of your plan that day, you know? And if you feel your body properly, imagine how much more you could accomplish in training too. Um, oh, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. It's like, I love that comparison of holding your breath underwater surfing and no one's like, oh, you're addicted to air. It's kind of like, if you have to like, you know, pee and then you just ignore it. It's just, it's not going to end well. <laughs> An explosion or a UTI, neither of those are pleasant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We need, we need to do something about it. Sometimes it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. It's annoying. All those things are true, but it, but doesn't mean we, we disregard or ignore it. And so, and, and, and then part of the part of this model too, is just about dignity and respect for all bodies, period, you know, and it's about getting back to the pleasure of eating. It's like, when, when did it, when, what happened that people don't have to explain why they are or are not eating a food when you just offer them, I don't know, a cookie. <laughs> it's like, I don't need to know your story. By the way, if you're one of my patients, I want to know your whole story and all that kind of stuff, but in a social setting, you know what I mean? It's, it's really interesting to me. And the other thing that ends up happening as people fall down the rabbit hole of dieting, diet culture and disorder eating and then eating disorder is there's a profound level of self-absorption and a level of self-absorption that uh, usually the individuals not even aware about, you know, they're not taking the cues from other people like, no, I don't want to hear about your diet, you know, so it's an example how there's this bigger wedge of disconnection socially in terms of what goes on. And, you know, one of the things I hear a lot when, when people start to really get this and start nourishing their bodies with enough food is they didn't realize how often they were walking around just on that edge, not quite hangry, not, not to that intensity, but this, con this constant, like, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, 
<laughs> you know, just tightly wound and that it was from the, the under eating that was going on, you know? Oh yeah. And I, I think a lot of things I hear from clients are just other people who have kind of gone through this process of just making peace with food and, you know, kind of implementing the intuitive eating principles and not having to think about it anymore is that it feels like you're almost like put back into the real world and you're like, Oh my gosh, everyone around me is talking about diets and they're missing out on life. And I feel like I'm swimming. Yes. Yeah. You know, it can, it can really feel that way, you know, <laughs> and that gets into a whole other conversation in terms of setting boundaries. If you want to, if you don't want to, then maybe changing the conversation or just, you know, removing yourself from the conversation. Like, Oh, I got an important cell phone. I need to return the call <laughs> and you leave the conversation. It's, it's really interesting. And some of the, um, people that I work with who are either having families, plan to have families or have young kids, I'll say, you know, what'd it be like to end the legacy of diet culture in your family? Because when most people have gone through this, uh, it's, there's been a lot of suffering and they don't want their kids to suffer. And we can start at our own kitchen table. You know, that all bodies are worthy of dignity and respect. We don't criticize or shame people's food choices, you know? Eating is a form of pleasure and a form of, of connection. And yeah, it is a form of fuel, especially when you're training and, and so on, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I, I really do feel that it's changing, but it does take a lot of like strength and intention and swimming upstream to keep getting yeah. Whenever my clients are like, wow, I really feel like, you know, I have a different perspective and this is really hard. And I'm just like, oh, welcome to my life, you know, <laughs> like, right? welcome. welcome to the club and let's make the club bigger so that it's the norm. Yeah. Yeah. The ripple effect of all these things, you know, it's it. And I think sometimes we, we think, oh, we have to do all these big advocacy efforts, you know, to dismantle diet culture. But I find often just the meaningful conversations you have with your friends, loved ones and, and, and colleagues. These this is how we actually change culture because we are the culture, you know, and it feels less daunting. that oh, my God, I got to take down the administration. I got to create new policies like, whoo, you know, yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, Evelyn, it's been an honor to talk with you. I could talk with you for like five more hours. About Thank you. I think I could too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just been, it's just been really um, impactful on my life. And then therefore me allowing to impact other people's lives awesome. in my with, with the research that I advocate for. And also just the different, you know, like books and, and the guides and helpful things that you've put out. Now, before I ask you the end of the podcast question, which is all for fun, um, where can people find you? Oh my gosh. So a couple of places. So my website, evelyntribley.com or the website intuitiveeating.org. Um, the, the intuitive eating books, you can find them at a, you know, online or, or, or book and mortar bookstore near you. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm also, I'm on a social media break from Instagram, but that's the, the platform I, I use the most. There's actually a lot of really good free, uh, information on intuitive eating. So I went to do that as kind of a community service kind of idea. So, yeah. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I'll tag your Instagram handle in the show notes. If people want to go follow you, even if you're on a break, they can just scroll for a really long time. Oh, they can scroll. Yeah. And go look at the highlights for intuitive eating. I'd highly recommend that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let me ask you this question. I'm, I'm excited to learn your answer. So oh. let's say you are coming through the finish line of like the best race of your life, or maybe you've caught like the best wave of your life. In oh. What song is playing at the finish line or at the wave to oh embody in this moment? I'm so excited. <laughs> oh my God. Do you know what? I totally blanked. And I'll tell you why, because I used to have running songs. Um, and I, I don't remember what they are right now. <laughs> 
<laughs> what a buzzkill. I'm so sorry. I'm totally blanking on any name of any song, but it used to have, usually the songs have themes in them, the words, uh, either keeping going or coming home or something like that. It's, it's a very unexciting answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, I think this helps because you had running songs and you had like running songs that you associate with running, which I think is great that, yeah. that tells us that you are a, a music person when you run, which is fun. You so know what? I am. Yeah. <laughs> I love and it. And probably at two o'clock in the morning, I'll wake up and go, that was the name of the song. Here are the songs. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you can shoot me an email and I will include it in the show notes. Because okay. I just have been making the best playlist ever. Oh ever my God. Ever. I bet. So yeah. I have all these great running songs now that I can share with the world. <laughs> That's awesome. 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 Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for everything that you have done and that you are still doing. Um, and it was great to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Take care. All right. And that is our show for today. If you guys need more support with your nutrition, if what we talked about in this episode today really resonated with you, um, I invite you to check out the Hollyfield Nutrition Online Learning Academy. We have my runner roadmap course, which is my flagship course um, that all of my clients throughout my various programs have access to. They are self-paced modules, but we cover absolutely everything you need to know about fueling your body as a runner and building a strong nutrition foundation for your health, your performance, and your longevity in the sport. Also in the academy, we've got my Fueled Up membership, which gives you access to monthly masterclasses that I do every single month. Um, and we definitely cover things like where to start with your nutrition, how to make sure you're fueling enough, um, you know, blood sugar regulation, preventing stress fractures through nutrition, and so much more. So make sure you go check those out. Those are both linked in the show notes. Thanks again to our sponsor for today, which is BetterHelp. You can save 10% off of your first month of therapy using the link in the show notes, which is betterhelp.com slash hollyfueled. Again, if this episode resonated, therapy would probably be a really great option to get you started on healing your relationship with food. Until next time, happy running. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 